Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 58 with Jamie Simpson. Be flexible, you know, don't be fixed in your business model. If something's not working, adjust it. If that doesn't work, adjust it again. (laughs) Because in the end of the day, something's going to work. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. On this week's episode, we have Chef Jamie Simpson. He's the chef liaison at the Chef's Garden and the executive chef of the Culinary Vegetable Institute. The Chef's Garden has been delivering amazing produce and specialty products direct from the farm to chefs and restaurants for over 30 years. As many businesses have had to pivot due to COVID, the Chef's Garden has also made some changes. While still offering their products to chefs, they now offer home delivery boxes direct to the consumer. Jamie and I talk about this new program, as well as some of the other things they're doing, like co-packing, working on shelf-stable ingredients, cooking for smaller private events, and their new Airbnb accommodation. We also discuss the annual Roots Conference they host, and conferences in general. I'd like to thank this week's sponsor, Chef Ron Krieger. If you're interested in sponsoring a show, please hit me up and let me know. You can also donate directly to our Venmo, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks so much, and have a great day. All right. Welcome, everyone. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And today we have Chef Jamie Simpson. He's the chef liaison at the Chef's Garden and the executive chef of the Culinary Vegetable Institute. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you so much, Chris. Hey, thanks for coming on. So the Chef's Garden, I know them as someone who provides amazing produce to restaurants. And what's that been? About 30 years now that they've been doing that? Right. Almost 40. Wow. That's such a a great track record. But now, I guess due to COVID, you guys are trying to adapt a little bit and start shipping to the home consumer. Is that kind of what's going on right now? In a nutshell. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Everything seemed to literally change overnight. And man, it, you know, in the restaurant industry, we think so much about restaurants, but places like you guys are impacted just as much, if not more. And I imagine that's been, you know, a super challenging thing for you guys to overcome. You know, it's a kind of a similar um, issue or opportunity that even a restaurant faces. We, we often look at the, sh- the chef's garden as an extension of the kitchens that we serve, right? So, like, we do have uh, prep cooks and we have uh, purveyors essentially out in the fields, like, picking the right products to order. And where a restaurant could turn into, like, a uh, some sort of a food delivery service, um, we kind of are doing the same thing. It's actually the very similar to farming and, and cooking. How fast did you guys make that pivot? You know, once it looked like restaurants are going to be closing down, how quickly did you manage to figure out, okay, we're going to go into start doing home delivery? Fortunately, um, where we are in Ohio, um, our governor was pretty quick to shut restaurants down. I think one of the first. Um, it was a Sunday. Farmer Lee and I were at a chef's wedding and, you know, the audience in the room was chefs as well. And everyone's, you know, these people are saying their vows and everybody's phone is blowing up. Um, the night farmer and I, we left selling home delivery boxes. It happened pretty quick. 
Yeah, that was around, I guess for you guys, was it the same as, um, you know, like the second week in March or so, I imagine? Correct. Uh, so give us a little bit background about, you know, how did you come to start working at the Chef's Garden and the Culinary Vegetable Institute? Like, what was the path that brought you there? Like many chefs, this place uh, where we are now, the Institute, we host six or used to host six or 700 guest chefs a year in this building. And the Institute was here as a place for people to better understand where their food comes from, to get in the fields, pull some vegetables, bring them into a kitchen and, uh, and then apply them to something. It was built as a place to, you know, embrace failures in many ways to explore and try new things. And I came here like most chefs, I was working in a great restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina, um, where I was born and raised. And, um, when I had an opportunity to take some time off of work and go to another restaurant, I opted out of that and to take a road less traveled, uh, towards a farm. And that farm was this farm, the farm that we were ordering from, the, the one that felt like Christmas every time you open the box, you know, the one that just brings a sense of place and uh, time and seasonality and all those things. I really fell in love with the farm from afar. And I came up to help with a Roots conference, the very first conference um, that we held for chefs. Um, it was uh, seven years ago. And it was sort of a four-month project. And I was like, okay, I'm going to come up for this four-month project. I'm going to help with this concept. We're going to get it off the ground. I'll go back to Charleston, and I'll, and I'll leave with all of the stuff I fell in love with and never left. Moving here was a, a great opportunity for me and one that fits, I believe, uh, pretty well uh, in your podcast concept of chefs without restaurants. Was there a chef there previously or were you the first one to come on into a position like this? There was, there was about a dozen chefs in this position, um, within a, you know, 15, 20 year period. Um, and chefs from all over the place from really literally from all over the world, like have, have operated this kitchen. It's not a restaurant. It's not a banquet hall. It's not a, you know, it's not a R and D kitchen, really. It's it's sort of, you know, this flexible space that was designed by a board of advisors: Charlie Trotter, um, Alain Ducasse, Jean George was involved at one point. Chris Hastings from Hot and Hot Fish Club was involved. Um, Rick Tremonto helped with a lot of the design here. And it was basically like a bunch of chefs from around the industry that helped and really supported the farm, uh, put their heads together on how to build a place that, you know, could, could continue to teach. So who are the typical people who come to do learning or farm tours or whatever? I mean, they're chefs from all walks of life around the country or world. Yeah. Yeah. All over. I mean, part of, you know, if, its function is like if I'm going to go to a farm uh, as a chef, I, I'm you know and travel maybe across the country or the world to go there. I, I would like to have a kitchen somewhat nearby that I can cook in, and um, that's why this was built. Yeah, our like our the people that come to the institute are 
you know, um, sh- chefs in multi-unit chains that like you would never expect uh, to learn about carrots, like, you know, Starbucks and Wendy's and Chick-fil-A, right? And then you have, you know, chefs in like other types of like higher end restaurant groups from, you know, the Landry's of the world to Disney's and the cruise ships to hotel chefs. Even like, you know, Nordstrom is a, you know, you would know it as a retail space for like clothes, but they have a huge food service division, like a massive food service division. Like things of like, you know, it's all kinds of types of people. Um, obviously, also a really high end uh, chef. But the goal is really to understand like how to incorporate vegetables in their menus. There's no better place in the country to do that, you know. I think that a place that's connected to a farm that grows six or 700 varieties of vegetables is a good start. But then you put a kitchen on it that was designed by some of the greatest chefs in the world. Uh, you got a great spot. It's a good recipe for creative thinking. It must be really exciting to get to work with so many new products and interesting heirloom varietals. I mean, looking through your catalog of things you guys have, there's stuff I've never tasted, never worked with. How do you work with products? Do you just grab something and start trying it, tasting it, doing kind of like an analysis? I mean, if there's a variety of cauliflower that you've never had before, you just pick it up and start working with it? Right. I mean, we, we treat every day as a, you know, a blank slate and a walk through the garden. And, you know, when oftentimes we're going through even ingredients like vegetables that you know, that, that, that most people know. You, you can find new parts or new stages of that plant's life that are really interesting. Like a, you know, like a, a zucchini, will, like right now, a zucchini will go from like this green almond sort of texture, right? And like flavor profile. Then it goes to like a traditional like summer squash sort of thing that we all know. And then like it'll keep going into like a gourd pumpkin space if you let it, right? Um, and form a hard skin when you knock on it. It's almost hollow and uh, the seeds are hard. It's pretty cool. Um, but when we are approached with a new item, like something that maybe a modern plate has never seen, like oca, in parts of Peru and Central America, Mexico, like there's some guys exploring and experimenting with oca. Um, we started growing it here, and it was something that m- most chefs in the United States had no clue what to do with or what it was for, you know, beyond traditional applications of, like, puree. Now, oka is the tuber of a variety of sorrel, right? Think about, like, this tuber, kind of like um, maybe a Jerusalem artichoke, but, like, colored, like... Like, I don't even know, like a, like a gemstone from like the earth and then flavored like a sour apple, you know, with the starch of a potato. <laughs> and so you've got this new thing that that is a, is a great place for us to really start exploring because like if it's starchy, maybe it'll fry and, you know, if it's, if it's sweets, it'll caramelize. If it's sour, let's try the juice. If it's, you know. If it's rich and full of cellulose, then maybe we can dry it into like crispy things. And, you know, I don't know. We just, um, we kind of look at everything for the first time, every time, ideally, 
you know, and that, that applies to carrots as well. So how do you start growing something like that or why? Is it someone approaches you and wants you to grow them? Is it something you guys learn about and want to try it? Like if you get into Oka, like why would you even start growing that in the first place? Oftentimes it's a, it, you know, a lot of these vegetables come at the request of a specific restaurant or a chef. Uh, sometimes by the time we figure it out, either the restaurant's closed or is not interested in the item even more. It took us five years to figure out how to grow the stuff for that, that example. Um, you know, if, if you were in a situation like maybe your grandmother lived in Italy and when she moved to America at a young age, she brought with her, her mother's tomato seeds and she planted them every year and canned them. And, and you had one little vial of those seeds left, right? And instead of like risking it all and, and planting those seeds yourself, you'd send them to a farm like this to plant and grow for your menu to tell your story of your grandmother or your great-grandmother. You know what I mean? So sometimes that's the case. And it's a really beautiful, I love when that happens, when, a, when some, even if it's not the best tomato in the world, it just tells such an impactful story that just makes you want that, you know, and to be a part of it. Why aren't people growing more of these things? Like, why do you not see them commercially? I mean, I know a lot of things are impacted by um, yield and cost of production, but it just seems a shame that you go to the grocery store and we have one carrot now. Maybe you have two if it's a really nice place, but with all the varieties out there, why are we just limited to what people think of as, you know, these horse carrots or whatever? You, I mean, you hit it right on the head there. It, it's really an, uh, in in mass like agriculture and real production for like you know farms that are trying to compete in grocery stores per se. It's a tons per acre game. That's it. It's not. It's not about flavor. Um, it's about yield, and it's also about distribution or shipability. So when they harvest maybe like tomatoes, they'll harvest green tomatoes that have the ability to ripen when prompted um, that can be shipped green because they're not, you know, soft yet. Um, and they can ripen at the grocery store. Um, sometimes it's like carrots to your point. Carrots are harvested. Most of them in the United States are grown in California in a desert. They're watered heavily they absorb the water and then they pull them out of the ground they cut the tops off in the field and they ship the root um, they grow quick they're easy to grow and uh, it's a tons per acre game when the farm looks at growing a new product uh, it's it, it's about flavor it's about shelf life which is important not always but is uh, it's about you know color it's about story why are we growing this and why is it important? Um, sometimes we like this institute here is, is tasked with like weeding out like 30 different varieties of something and turning it into two or three and make those available. And so we have to look at it from a critical point and like, obviously flavor is most important um, in, in the, it wouldn't be in front of us if it didn't have yield. So that's already been decided. We get to look at things like, at that point, we get to look at things like like historical references. You know, are there, is this variety 
you know, more similar to something that was grown 5,000 years ago, you know, and, and then we can kind of shape a story around it. If it can be applied to desserts or cocktails or, you know, savory applications, that's also really kind of a cool place to, to live. Um, we just did a tasting a few weeks ago on different amounts of salt, sea salt, added to water and watered the plants with that liquid. And in some cases, some plants can absorb that salt water and make a leaf almost seasoned. In some cases, at certain varying degrees, it will inhibit growth and the plant will no longer grow. So we have to find the sweet spot for certain plants to water with seawater and um, bring them something that they had inside them, the ability to produce this salty, minerally leaf um, is really cool. That's wild. I would think that like salt would kill the plant. I would never try and do that, but I guess that's what you guys get into is just kind of trial and error with some of this stuff. Yeah. In many cases, I mean, some of the plants that we're growing are like indigenous to like, you know, sandy beaches. And if that's the case, then they can handle and tolerate certain levels of salt. If they don't have salt, they're not going to absorb it. <laughs> um, but that same theory then can be applied to other plants like fennel or celery, right? Some, some plants can absorb uh, certain levels of salt and like, then you get really cool, different flavor profiles. Do you have any ingredients that you really love there? Like, is there something you had never tried and you've discovered and now you just love it or love working with it, or it's been a real joy to kind of do some R and D with? There's a handful of them. We're growing a um, series of ingredients that we think um, apply themselves really well to cocktails um, and spirits in general. And some of the compounds in those plants tend to lend themselves well to alcohol soluble or alcohol solubility. So like, you know, if I were to put certain types of sorrel with a cocktail, you know, versus others, some will like really express a nice sour apple, green apple flavor profile, while others don't necessarily um, release any flavor with to the beverage, which I think is cool. The rhubarb right now, I'm kind of all about the rhubarb. And right now, I can't get enough tomatoes. I mean, we're, you know, when you get into some of these varieties side by side, you know, it almost is like, it's almost like a wine tasting. We're like this, this tomato is more like a pineapple than a tomato, or this tomato is more like a green grape, literally, than like a typical summertime tomato. And then others, you know, are already like, you know, sauce. And I'm, I'm loving that. We have about a hundred varieties we're growing right now, you know, and with COVID and without home delivery, they're all homeless. So it's useless. It's like, you know, it was a very difficult time for us because like, you know, you gotta, you gotta keep the plants alive, right? We're only talking about March. Many, most of these plants were already planted, um, whether they're in a greenhouse ready to go into the fields or we already had the, the, you know, starts, uh, or we have the seeds from last year and refrigeration ready to load this year. And like, you know, you gotta, one farmer actually it was farmer Lee's father said, uh, 
you know, the best way to save a seed is to plant it. You know, in some cases, like if you have that one special thing and you really, you know, want to save it, you, sometimes you just put it in the ground and you can turn it into, you know, 10 or 15 seeds. We were and are still at 100% risk of, of losing this everything, right? And if the best way to save a seed is to plant it, you know, then just plant the farm. And we're going to keep growing. Uh, we're going to keep harvesting. We're going to figure out a way and an outlet for it, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, in some cases, it's it's home delivery. You know, if I don't have several hundred pounds of a single product, it might not make sense in a uh, home delivery box. Or every day is just crazy. We are uh, we're looking at product development for the chef's garden right now at the institute. We're not doing dinners. We're building some shelf-stable, preserved foods, um, really designed around agricultural waste or potential agricultural waste. Uh, we found the best way to go to market with a whole bunch of products is by co-packing. Um, so we're going to start. We're starting there right now. We're shipping products out to a handful of manufacturers from jellies and jams to vinegars to mead to soap um potato chip companies are not out of the question um uh with looking at non-alcoholic spirits we've got a handful of ideas um we're, we're reshaping and resizing all of our honey frames in the hives so the bees can do something smaller for the houses um there's a lot of like a lot of cool projects in the works. And then while these things are going on, CVI itself will become a more of a packing plant or a processing plant for a handful of, of items that we finally choose make the most sense for us for now. Do you still have uh, some restaurants that are ordering products or has that pretty much been... Big like city markets like Chicago and like New York is pretty much offline. Um, there's a handful of restaurants doing some pretty neat stuff. Alinea is doing some really great like takeout options. This weekend, uh, Ever just opened Curtis Duffy's place. Um, they've got some cool stuff, but it's small volume. What we're seeing the most of right now is. Um, you know, resorts, private clubs, and things like that far out there in rural. Um, they're, they're still online. It seems to be doing okay in some cases. So when you do the like at-home um, delivery boxes, is there any selection or is it just kind of farmer's choice? And how's that going? Yeah, there's a few options. There's um, like early on, we, we curated a, an assortment of boxes with a group of doctors and drugless doctors is the organization that you know in their old roots of hippocrates that food is medicine and um and we do too in some cases they kind of helped us curate a, a list of ingredients that are good for like you know the immune system and so we we fulfill those and that's not like you know whatever you can throw at it there's a pretty specific list of ingredients that we keep in those boxes we have a series of boxes that we're doing with 
Thomas Keller right now called Small Farm and Big Hearts, or in our on our website, it's called Small Farm Provisions, and that's where basically the TKRG is sort of curating a handful of their purveyors into a single box to help save some of those small farms that has grown since. And we're working with Gavin Kaysen and he's brought on a different meat producer and we've done a, a, maybe a dozen or two dozen of these boxes since March of basic, I've got one on right now with Elysian fields or purebred lamb. And, um, the, the concept there is it's a pretty specific list of ingredients in the box um, with lamb or beef or, you know, oysters or seafood or whatever, caviar, duck, nothing's off the table, which is crazy. And it's, uh, it comes with like a video recipe and people can cook along at home. There is a best of the season box, which is our number one selling box that allows us to sort of navigate the farm and let the farmers be farmers and like whatever's great, you know, works its way into that box and that one goes out. And it changes really uh, pretty much weekly. You guys have a pretty good uh, blog component to your website with recipes and stuff. Do you find that that's something you're going to continue doing, especially as you see more home consumers with your products, maybe wanting some guidance on how to use things? Or is it just something you've always done and you'll continue doing? Ironically, the last 18 months, we've been writing a cookbook a book on vegetables and it's a nine, we just turned in a 900 page manuscript and it's off limits. And so when I started doing this home delivery thing and everyone's like, we need recipes. And I just spent my last two years on recipes for home cooks pretty much. And they're off limits. Um, so we started over and um, we started from scratch. We basically made a, blank recipe template and a blank uh, document on, on Google Drive and started throwing, compiling and writing recipes and this thing. A lot of people ask, like at home especially, like what do I do with, you know, flowers? <laughs> you know, what do I do with, um, with these beets? I've only worked with big beets, but these are baby beets. What do I do? It's just ideally it's a tool for people to kind of wrap their head around some of the applications and ideally, hopefully like chefs like you can contribute recipes to the page as well. So, you know, and if it's something you're interested in doing, let me know because it's, it's, it's some, it's a category that I want to grow, but I don't have the time to do it. So it's going to rely on relationships like you and I, or um, even like Rich or David, who you've interviewed. Yeah, I always try and talk to my friends who, you know, people love to get CSA boxes, but they'll always say like, I get kohlrabi every week and I have no idea what to do with it. You know, that seems to be one of the examples that people always get in a CSA box, but they probably never used. And so I'm always trying to create recipes and put them on my website just to say, if you've got this or if you've got that, here's what I do with it. Um, You know, and I find that to be fun. Kohlrabi is a perfect example. Like, look it up. And you get so you guys used to do full vegetable dinners on the farm previously when you could be open to the public, like people could come in and do dinners. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so the institute here uh, historically is open once a month for the public, and it, we do a series. We've done a, we do a handful of series. One of them is um, a lecture series. So like a um, maybe a, a a writer or a photographer or a chef or a farmer 
will come out, they'll tell their story. In some cases, it's a winemaker. And in other cases, it's like a maple syrup guy or whatever. But they'll come out, they tell their story, and then we do a small format, like four or five course dinner to relate to the topic. Um, we do a vegetable showcase series where there's one every other month. And it's like six courses of tomato. And the height of you know, potato season, we do a potato dinner and then we do a squash dinner and an asparagus dinner and things that like people can really get behind. Those do really, really well. Um, we, we sell those out as soon as we put them up. We do a lecture series. We do that. We do a, um, like a guest chef, you know, series where kind of a pop-up will allow, uh, you know, Jose Andreas came out or like, um, Paul Lee Brandt. Um, will come out and he'll he'll do um, he'll do him, you know. And we don't. There's no specific recipe, really formal written. We just get him out on the farm and do the thing and uh, cook some food. And it's always always really fun. I think my favorite guest chef dinner, and one of one of my favorites, but that just blew me away was Atera, uh, New York, Ronnie Imborg. Uh, just, just killed it. The kitchen is furnished with equipment from like all over the industry and it's always changing. So we have these fantastic partners that supply us with new ovens and new blast chillers and new mixers and uh, circulators and whatever we really plates. Our Steelite is our biggest uh, like plateware, glassware, flatware sponsor. Um, and we work with their ceramicists to do some stuff and it's just a really cool it's not a restaurant but it's really really a cool place sounds like a chef's dream i mean this is what i really love is there's so many interesting things you can do in the culinary world you know i went to culinary school and when you go to culinary school at least you know years ago it was like your options were somewhat limited you worked in a restaurant or hotel or resort or something like that or maybe you got in a contract food but there's so many interesting things you can do which is why i want to have you on the show because you know, you're you're a chef. You're a chef who does really great dishes, works with the best products, really cool plating, and you don't have to work this restaurant job. You know, there's just so many awesome things you can be doing. Yeah, I always said that. Even like when I, I also went to culinary school. Um, when I was in culinary school, I was even trying to help guide some of the other students that, you know, you don't have to come out of this with a chef job, right? Like. There's so many today, this morning, we got an invitation to go cook for some film crew in Honolulu for five days. Not going to do it. Um, not interested, but really interesting. You know, and if I was tied into like a restaurant, that kind of thing might be impossible. Uh, if there was like, you know, an opportunity to, you know, to continue to learn um, re restaurant concepts are really challenged with the need for the day-to-day -day operations, you know, and you have to like perform a certain amount every day or like, you know, it's just not viable and it's already a tight margin. So like restaurants are tough. They're really, really a, a difficult industry. And we're seeing it now with COVID of how delicate this damn situation is. You have, you know, some of the, I think it was like JP Morgan put out a financial statement that like, 
you know, all of their, of all of their like restaurant accounts, they only had an average of like 11 days of cash flow. Right. So like you're taking some of the best restaurants in the world. Right. And you're telling me that they can't close for 11 days without being closed forever. <laughs> you know, like with, they don't have enough cash on hand. Like if I was like a, like a tech company, uh, I could just shut down and turn back on in like 10 months. Yeah. I've seen so many restaurants that I love that are closed and just said, they're not going to open again. Just doesn't make sense. Can't do it. Your base of interviewees is about to grow a lot because, um, because of this nightmare. It's not a good situation. Yeah. And we've talked about this a lot. I mean, I, I would never open a restaurant. It just doesn't make sense. I don't have the money to begin with, but you know, I can run a pretty low overhead with my business and give someone a very similar experience to going out. And now, I mean, my business has exploded because what I do is this fine dining in home. What I'm seeing so much of now is I'm doing all these 12 to 20 person weddings. These people, you know, normally we're going to do 130 people. That's not my bread and butter. I can't do that at all. But now they're just renting an Airbnb and they just want to have 15 people out to the Airbnb and they find me. They're not hiring restaurants to come out and do it because I've already established myself as an in-home private chef and I bring the china and all that and set the table and give them that same experience. So I'm seeing a big uptick and people who are afraid to go to restaurants just because restaurants are open for indoor seating or have outdoor seating doesn't mean people are comfortable going there. So um, I'm seeing a lot of people who are transitioning into kind of what I've been doing. And every day people are asking me, how, how should I do this? What would you be doing if you were me right now to build a client list? We have one on Friday and, and I, it's something we would have said no to a hundred out of a hundred times, but like this Friday, we're going to pack up food for like 25 people. We're going to drive it to their house and uh, people do want to eat at home. People want, or at least to stay together. Yeah. And I see now you guys are uh, opening up to an Airbnb experience as well, which seems pretty cool. So what's that? You have like one room that people can stay at? Yeah. We call it our one-room hotel. The Institute was designed with a single suite above the kitchen. And it's beautiful. It's furnished by Viking, um, but it's got a really nice, like, log cabin, like, country feel. Kind of like this room. Um, wood from the property, when they cleared some trees to build the building, they turned into, like, this table. That is kind of the spirit throughout this entire building. Um, but the suite is a really great room and like, you know, traveling is kind of limited right now. So we thought we might as well just open it up um, for additional incremental revenue while we're not doing public events. And it's it booked uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, this week, uh, which is great. Yeah, that's really that re that's really cool. We're always looking for things like that. We might have to my wife and I get in the car and drive out there sometime. Come on out. What's your thought on the Roots conference? Have you guys thought about doing anything online? I mean, I'm sure this year it's not going to happen like it's always happened and now so many people are doing conferences, you know, via Zoom or whatever. Is there any decision on what you guys are going to be doing? Roots is huge for us. It's something that, you know, we we take really seriously. It's a big commitment for our team, um, but it's just such a valuable opportunity to bring people together. 
with COVID and corporate spending cuts and travel bans and all of that, obviously an on-farm and food safety, an on-farm like gathering of people is not the future for right now. Um, we have talked about, and I don't even know if we've made that statement public yet. You might be the first person to know. Um, we have an on uh, staff like IT department and a marketing team and a video uh, videographer and a photographer. Even with all of that, um, online conferences can be very difficult. We've talked about it. It's um, it's really a lot for our team right now. And I, I really don't know if we'll be able to, we are going to do something, but it will not compare to the magnitude that Roots Conference is. Yeah, you know, I love the Star Chefs Conference so much. I think I've gone the past nine years and, you know, just thinking that this October, that's not gonna go down. And, you know, it, it, it was always my favorite time of year to connect with everyone. You know, you guys were doing yours like almost right before that, weren't you? September, October, is that when Roots Conference was? Yeah, it was uh, like a, I think about a week before it. Yeah, that's why I've never made it because I always take like almost a whole week and go to New York around that time. And I've never been able to justify taking off like two weeks in October to come do conferences. But it looks like this year I'm not going to get to do anything. Yeah, uh, I love Star Chefs as well. I mean, the, um, the people behind it are relentless and they're, they're so focused and driven uh, in what they're doing and they do set, they do a really really great job it's a lot of work so do you have anything else you want to share with our listeners before we get out of here today i don't know i think i mean like i guess there's got to be there's got to be some words of encouragement or um shared i guess there's got to be some words of encouragement shared for our listeners if if i'm assuming your audience is is both chefs and chefs without restaurants um just know we have a ear on the ground of the industry and there are some restaurants that are doing phenomenally well um there are some restaurants that have made some really important changes um, to continue to do business and some on the front end those changes are hard um, but as you adapt to them, like they get easier and business can in some cases never be better. You know, if you are in a situation where you had to do more revenue, you might look at all types of dining, be flexible, you know, don't be fixed in your business model. If something's not working, adjust it. If that doesn't work, adjust it again, <laughs> you know, because in the end of the day, something's going to work. and. Like I said earlier in the beginning of this call, I believe that the chef's garden or growing vegetables and uh, farming is somewhat similar to cooking in a restaurant. In our case, uh, you got to be flexible and try new things and take a road less traveled and take risks and embrace it, fall on your face and get up and do it again and have a lot of fun. I think that those... Those things are some of the most important things this industry can do right now. That's very inspiring. I love that. And like everything in life, not just food, I think sometimes 
simple is best. And if you start with a good foundation, you get good stuff. And I can't think of a better thing to start with than amazing produce. So I'll definitely be out there spreading the word because you guys have some great stuff. And I hope that now so many people at home also discover the products that uh, the world's best chefs have known about for a little while. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Glad we were able to make it happen. It's been a crazy couple of weeks. Well, to all our listeners, this has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.